Well, good morning. Yeah, our final day looking at the New Testament. And we're at this book, Revelation. And, and as Ed said, when you get into it, it can get a little weird. You, if anybody, anybody here who's read any part of Revelation and all the allegories and that, it can get crazy reading that. And, and I've known people who kind of get weird when they really get into it. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at some of Jesus' advice around Revelation. I want to look in there, but I want to kind of do a quick flyover, 20,000 foot view, since we've done this book. And we've looked over this book over the last year, really, we've kind of done that sort of larger view. We started in the book of Genesis, and now we're at the very end, so we've gone from beginning to end. And in the book of Genesis, we read that God, the uncreated being, spun this world into existence through His spoken word. Let there be light, there was light, let there be darkness, let there be land, sea, he brought them together. And then he formed man in his own image, male and female. He made him and placed him on the earth as his creation. They were to reflect back to him who he was. It was an overflow of God's joy creation, something he was enjoying doing. You have the sense he was having fun doing it. It was good. It was good. It was good. And then it wasn't good that man was alone, but then it was very good. And he had this joy and he put us here in his image with freedom. Freedom to operate in a sense of freedom like he does. And he, we, we see this freedom written about in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden and to work it and to care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free. He said, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, he said, you will surely die. Very beginning of the story. Freedom, harmony with God, and that freedom was accentuated with choice, and God put this choice. I don't understand all the ways of God, but He put the choice of the knowledge of good and evil in their presence. And He said, if you, if you partake of that, you will surely die. And then, of course, we read in Genesis chapter 3, we started creation, and the fall was our second week. And in the fall, Adam and Eve were standing there by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, saw that its fruit was good and pleasing to their eyes. So Eve took some. She gave some to her husband who was there with her. They ate of it and their eyes were open, the Bible says. Their eyes were open to the knowledge of good and evil. And they were ashamed now because the presence of evil, the knowledge of evil was within them. Evil, in a sense, entered them, and they were aware that they were naked, so they went into hiding. And we call this the fall of man, because in the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man and woman fell away from the presence of God, out of perfect harmony with God. They fell apart from each, each other. Their harmonious relationship was broken. Adam started to blame Eve. Eve started to blame Adam. Then we see the fall of man into corruption from that point because their hearts became evil and the knowledge of evil and the presence of evil became overwhelming and the temptation and the spiritual forces of evil started to influence humanity and so it was the fall of man we see that and then you read in genesis chapter 6 that god was even grieved that he made the world because in the bible says every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. Evil had taken over that much. And so God decided He was going to wipe humankind from the earth. 
And so we read the story of Noah, but he found Noah, Noah found favor, and he said, told Noah to build an ark and to tell the people, warn the people that God was going to flood the earth and start over and wipe out the earth. And we have geological evidence of a worldwide flood, if you study that. And, and so God wiped out all of most of his created beings except two of you know every kind of animals to sustain them and Noah and his family. And then he starts over, and we start to read of what we call the next chapter, uh, creation, the fall, the patriarchs, where God decides now, with the fall of man into sin, the presence of evil, he's going to claim a people for himself that he can teach how to walk with him even in the presence of evil and sin. And so he's going to make a nation then that, that learns how to deal with sin and then that can be a blessing to all of the tribes of the whole world. And so Abraham becomes the father of many nations. Isaac, his son, Jacob, Joseph, we call them the patriarchs. Joseph then, of course, if you know his story, is led into Egypt where, where eventually the Israelites, God's people, his nation, come to Egypt to be fed through a famine and then the Pharaoh forgets about Joseph and his people many years down the road and they become slaves. God's people become slaves in Egypt. And so God raises up sort of a Christ figure, his name was Moses, to go in and free them from their slavery in Egypt. And he frees them and he brings them into the desert. And all the while we're seeing God is showing them how to deal with sin, to be his people, to walk upright with him, to be at peace with him. And the instruction he gives through the Old Testament is that to be right with sin, when you eat of it, you will surely die. Romans 6.23, God said, the wage, he said it in Genesis, the wage for sin is death. And so in order for you to be right with me, there has to be the payment of death. And so we read all through the Old Testament, the slaughtering of animals, the death animals, put to death as sacrifices unto the Lord. So those sacrifices could be for an atonement for people's sins. You see, it's one thing to know the story and the facts of what happened in the story. It's another thing to have revelation to spiritually what the facts mean. And God says this book is only understood spiritually. And so I'm giving you sort of the, the main thrust of the spiritual story. The fall of man into sin, a spiritual problem, a spiritual separation from God. To deal with that sin in the world, God says, the wage of sin is death. And there has to be the shedding of blood. I don't know why he said this, but Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood in that death, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so God was teaching His people through the Old Testament to be right with me. There has to be atonement for your sin. Bring me lambs. Bring me sheep. Bring me goats. Bring me doves. Place them on the altar. Shed their blood there. Thousands upon thousands upon millions of animals. Slaughtered for the atonement for sin through the Old Testament. So God's people could be His people and live right with Him. And this was the labor of the Old Testament. The priests did it daily. People would travel for miles to bring their sacrifices. If they were a poor family, God would allow them to do a bird, a dove, or of some sort. But they had to keep bringing about death for the atonement of their sins so their sins wouldn't be counted against them. And so then you have Moses frees them. We see the, the specifics, the details of the temple laid out as they're in the desert. They don't have the faith to move into the promised land. Eventually they move into the promised land. And then we have the prophets. 
and then the kings, and the, it, it, they were both used. God didn't want to give them kings. He wanted to lead them. He wanted to have his benevolent sort of leadership of them. And then prophets would, God would raise up prophets to bring them back to what he was teaching them. And then you have this unfold, and their nation of Israel grows and it shrinks, and others are blessed, all depending on their obedience to God and their heart and their contriteness and their atonement and this. And then you have all these years of silence. And you know what's interesting? 400 years before the New Testament. And just so you understand this, God says, Romans 15, looking back, all of that Old Testament was written so that those of us living in the New Testament era might have hope. Hope. Through our endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, the Old Testament says, we might have hope. 400 years of silence. And you know, all of the prophets in the past were giving those in the Old Testament times hope as they looked forward. They prophesied one day there is coming, there is coming a sacrifice that will be a once and for all sacrifice for the atonement of sins and there will be a new way and it will be a new covenant. And they were waiting for that, what they called Messiah, Savior. 400 years of silence where God is silent. And then you get to what we've been walking through, the New Testament. And it starts with the Gospels, the good news, which we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Four written accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ was, according to the revelation of Scripture, the awaited Messiah. The problem was humanity's separation from God. And then the answer was dealing with that separation, the sin that separates us, through death. And then all of a sudden, here comes the Messiah. We don't quite, you know, at that time, we didn't quite understand it. The mystery of God revealed is what the Bible says. And when John the Baptist saw him under revelation, he has, spiritually speaking, he says something very significant in the desert. When he sees Jesus, he says, look. And he wanted everyone to look at him. And he said, that is the Lamb... Of God. You understand what that would mean coming out of the Old Testament? Thousands upon millions of lambs sacrificed for the atonement of sins so people could be right with God. And John the Baptist looks and he says, Look, the Lamb of God. Humanity has problems. Okay? We have all kinds of problems. Right in this room, we, we bring problems into this room. There's relationships that are broken. There's pain in our hearts and grief and suffering and sickness because people die. Loved ones die. There's tension in our hearts and our spirits because intrinsically we know there's evil in the world and there's corruption and there's Corruption in the workplace. And we have suspicions. 
and we have frustration and intrinsically we know humanity is corrupted so we're nervous about who gets elected and and what's going to happen in a vote and and we wonder who's going to lead us and and what that means for the government and there's a sense of insecurity in our world among people in their hearts simply because we know the presence of evil is here but all of this all of this corruption we feel and all of this is simply the outgrowth of the root problem of humanity. See, and if we don't, if we don't look at the world through the worldview that's revealed here, we will miss the main function of life. We'll miss the purpose of life and we won't live out the life God intended us to. The real root of everything, the real of, root of the corruption in our world the tension we feel the discouragement we feel the pain we feel the heartache we feel is our separation from god because of the presence of sin in the world evil in the hearts of humanity and every one of us has it and to deal with that sin god says there has to be death And so when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, look, the Lamb of God, who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Hope has arrived. Real hope has arrived in Jesus because He's the only one who has the power to deal with the real problem. Do you understand, if someone is offering you hope, Someone who's trying to get elected, let's say. Someone is offering you hope for your life in any way. As a leader, as a friend, as, a, as an employer, in any... And at the center of that hope is not the work, the power, the person of Jesus Christ. Be very leery. Because there is no hope outside of a spiritual hope for humanity. Guard your heart, the Bible said. Hope has arrived in Jesus. He's the one who can deal with humanity's real problem. And that's sin. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The problem is they were looking for a governmental leader. And when he came into Jerusalem, we read this in the Gospels, they were saying, they were praising him, bowing down. Hosanna, blessed is he who They thought he was going to set up his new nation as a governmental leader. And they watched him through the week become arrested and they became discouraged. And finally they said, he's not our hope. They were confused and so they joined the Jews. Even God's people joined in and said, crucified him, he deceived us. Because their hope was in the wrong thing. And Jesus died. But see, He was dealing with a far bigger kingdom. He was dealing with an eternal hope. Not just a hope for one nation here on earth. He was setting up a hope for the whole world. And when he died, he didn't die because they decided to crucify him. He died for the atonement of sin. To take away the sins of the world. And then three days later, he simply verified who he was through resurrection. Then he ascended into heaven. And there you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you get into the letters to the 
churches and to the leaders to know how to live under this new covenant where we no longer have to offer sacrifices because the sacrifice once and for all has been given and now we can be born into a whole new way of living through faith in Jesus. And that's the era we're living in where the Bible says God is being patient with us now, wanting all to come to a knowledge of the truth so that people's sins won't be counted against them so that none will perish. And then you get to the book of Revelation. You see, you have to understand this in the context of the story, spiritually speaking, because we're in the days of waiting. And as Ed said, Revelation is primarily a revelation of things to come, yet in the linear working of God in history. And so whether we understand it perfectly or not, I don't think is the point. I think a part of the point is we're anticipating what this one true Savior is unfolding in the linear plan of history. And I think this is stated to us at the beginning of Revelation. And what I want to do is look here and then give you some of Jesus' advice about what is said here. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So God gave this revelation first to Jesus. Okay, understand this. It first came to Jesus for him to show his servants, that would be his true followers in the world down through history, what must soon take place. It's linear. It's going somewhere. Something is going to happen. And God gave this revelation after Jesus had ascended to Jesus and Jesus, how did he do this? He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, on the island of Patmos. Two things about it. Said it's linear. Secondly, notice the vagueness of the time. What must soon take place. No specific time is given. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and he he unfolds the main revelation of revelation right here. Who is, who was, and who is to come. From the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, he's going to say it three times at the beginning of Revelation. From the seven spirits before his throne, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead. He's the conqueror of death, the main enemy that came to us through sin. He's the firstborn. He's inviting us to join us as his heirs, as the firstborn. And the ruler of the kings of the earth. John simply wants to say, this is the king of all kings. This is the authority over everything. From him who loves us and freed us from our sins, by his blood, the main spiritual work he's done is through the shedding of his blood, through his death, dealt with our greatest problem. You see, the story is packaged here spiritually. And he has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Do you know the highest office in the world is not the governorship it's not the president the highest office in the world is the office of priest and do you understand now anyone in christ is a priest who can come right before god and we need to understand this we've been born into an eternal kingdom with god as father and each one of us can come before god as his children the king of all things and in and, and the revelation, as we see this, he's unfolding this to give us hope. And you, you'll see in a minute Jesus' advice. 
To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, He is coming in the, with the clouds. Even those who pierced Him, all the peoples of the earth, will mourn because of Him. So shall it be. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. He's giving us a hope to look forward to. The hope to look back on His work and a hope to look forward to. And I don't know about you, but I've, just as Ed was saying, had numbers numbers of people project dates and times and such and get, what I've said, kind of weirded out about the coming of Christ and revelation and the judgment and all that. And I simply want to go to the advice of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 as we read this. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to Him privately and said, Tell us, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And the end of the age. And Jesus answered. And this is why I think it's so important. And God, He just keeps impressing on us about a whole worldview that involves looking through the pages of Scripture and the work of God in the world. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in My name claiming, I am the Christ, and they will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But here's the first piece of advice. With all of this, see to it that you are not alarmed. You are not alarmed. Such things must happen. The end is still to come. God was simply in grace wanting to give us a perspective. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. He talks about nations coming and nations going. All of this is temporary. And then he says, very clearly, no one knows about that day. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Fascinating. Only God knows. Jesus is not even given revelation. No one knows about that day or hour. Not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field and one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other left. And here comes... Two more pieces of advice from Jesus. Therefore, he says, keep watch. You understand this book is about hope. The hope points backwards to the atonement of sin in Jesus and forwards to the coming of the resurrected Christ. Keep watch. Keep living with hope. Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time the night of the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also, third piece of advice, 
so you also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. I have to admit, preaching this message, talking about this revelation, and how many people have done it down through the ages, and He hasn't returned yet, it has to feel a little bit like Noah. Noah was saying, there's a flood coming. And they laughed and they mocked him. And nothing else really mattered to Noah. He, his, his picture was a part of a, a bigger picture. It was a driving force in his life because he knew, God had said, something is coming. Jesus ends the book and he says, Behold, I am coming. As a preacher, we just simply have to say, He is coming. He said, When the things go goofy in the world, don't panic, be alert, be watchful. And be ready. When my kids were younger and I took them to elementary school or junior high, after school, we got them cell phones in junior high. We didn't have to do it quite as much, but we would say, we'll be there to pick you up if they weren't riding the bus. I'm not sure if I'll get there right away or a little later. I would say, just watch for me and be ready. I don't want to have to come in and get you. Get your bags ready. Get your stuff ready. When I pull up, I would say, you can just come right over to the car and hop in. Jesus is simply saying the same thing. I'm not telling you exactly when I'm coming. But I'm coming. Be watchful. Be ready. Noah said, there's a flood coming. You should get ready. People ignored him. One day it started to rain. Noah sent another warning. Finally he closed up the ark. And for 40 days and 40 nights it rained. The Bible says Jesus is coming. But God is being patient with us now, not wanting any to perish. He says, get ready, I'm coming. We don't know when. How is a person made ready? By having their sins covered by the blood of Jesus. If you haven't opened up your heart to Jesus to have your sins forgiven, maybe today would be a day that you do that. Say, God, I want to be ready for when you come. Because when he comes, author C.S. Lewis, I think, describes it well, the play is over. And at one point, the judgment is rendered. And those in the sort of ark of God's new covenant will be ushered into his eternal kingdom. 
and the doors will be shut up and those who weren't ready will be cast into what Revelation calls allegorically the eternal lake of fire. And Jesus simply said, get ready. If you're not ready today, maybe just sitting there with your hearts, the most significant thing in the work of the world is what's spiritually going on in the hearts of men and women. And right here in this room, if your sins are being counted against you, you're separated from God, and God's only answer for sin is through the shed blood of Jesus. And we can receive that gift by faith, opening our hearts to Him. And you could do that in the quiet presence of this room or at any point when you want to open your heart to Him. And the rest of us who are ready, we should stay on this mission of helping people become fully devoted followers of Christ. It's the most important mission on the planet. Let's pray together. Father, I understand your book has been batted around by historians and it's been trampled by government leaders in history. It's been even outlawed at times and we have free access to it. And it invites us into an eternal kingdom, a spiritual kingdom that will last forever. And we should be very grateful for that. And it it gives us a hope and a peace beyond anything this world has to offer. And sometimes we get confused about that. There's so many emotions, Lord, around an election and a leader and stuff. Lord, help that. Help that. If that's an issue for us, help it to reorient us to where our real hope comes from whether the person we got into office in this area of government, that area of government, is the person we wanted or not. Lord, help us listen to you as the one true king, the authority of all, for our advice and our direction. And help us walk upright as your people in the new covenant of your blood and look forward watchful to your coming. And live as those that are ready. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.